I couldn't hear my thoughts during Zaza. <laughs> that helped me still my mind. <laughs> couldn't hear it anyway. Well, I was first focusing on the change and the wind and sound. Sorry. Bingo. <laughs> An unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Having it to see and listen to to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Oh, so good morning, everybody. Prepare to uh, explore this wonderful practice of mindfulness a little more this morning. So first of all, uh, joining us on Zoom, we have uh, Ryan and Matt and uh, pretty full Zendo here this morning with uh, Joe and Paul and Steve and Scott and Joel and Sean and Keith. So where we're picking up with uh, Analayo's text on the Satipatthana Sutra. We, uh, last time, way back in June, <laughs> time flies, calendar just zips right along. Uh, but we, we started looking at mindfulness of the breath, one of the principal forms of mindfulness practice. And we're going to be continuing that and more broadly speaking, moving on to other aspects of mindfulness of the body, which make up uh, what's termed the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of, of the body. So we, we uh, left off with uh, with just the first two practices of the Satipatthana Sutra. So we're gonna begin this morning by looking at the third and the fourth steps of the mindfulness of breathing, which are concerned, first of all, with mindfulness of breathing as the whole body. Last month, you may recall, we talked about uh, mindfulness of what's right in front of you. And in connection with breathing, uh, many practitioners take that to signify, you know, the, the tip of the nostril where the breath is coming in. So it's a very focused awareness of breathing. With the third and fourth exercises, however, we go beyond that. And now it's uh, breathing as the whole body. 
And that's a different experience. So the third exercise is just working with this sense of it's the whole body breathing. So you expand your awareness. And to give you a concrete example of that, uh, for uh, people who experience, as we all do from time to time, some, some pain in a knee or, or some other part of the body, uh, it can be helpful just to have this sense of breathing into that place where there's discomfort. So that's a different practice, obviously, than putting your attention on the tip of the nostril. But many people find that helpful to dealing with discomfort, just to take a few in-breaths and to kind of provide some... Uh, some uh, refreshment, some nourishment to that uh, ailing part of the body. And in the out breath, to kind of allow it to relax. A sense of release. So that would just be a very concrete example of what's being discussed here in terms of mindfulness of breathing as the whole body very much connected to that. And an immediate outgrowth of that is the fourth exercise of the calming effect of mindfulness of breathing. So now, since we're directing our focus more broadly to the whole body, when we move into the fourth exercise, it's with this sense of the calming effect on our whole body just from the breathing. And that's kind of a natural progression. So it doesn't require much effort on our part to, to fall into that. And we can stay there for, for as long as you choose. I mean, these exercises are set up uh, just to become familiar with. And there, there's no guideline about, you know, spend, Spend 10 minutes on this or, <laughs> you know, people want to know, well, how long should I do this for? Now, when can I move on? Uh, it's not the, the whole series of practices here. Uh, they all are designed to kind of work together. But at the same time, once we become familiar with all the exercises within the Satipatthana Sutra, we also come to realize that actually the whole teaching is there in each and every one of the exercises, which makes the whole question about, uh, about which, which ones should I really focus on uh, kind of a moot point. That's for each individual, for your practice. Trust yourself. You know, what, uh, what works well for me and what I uh, uh, initially got involved with isn't necessarily what's, what you, your path with mindfulness uh, should be. 
the point is, is number one, the reason for studying this text is because it's such a good, solid foundation for the practice. It's just good practical guidance. And then put it into practice and just follow it wholeheartedly as you deem appropriate for you. You'll, you'll have a sense. And if questions come up, you know, feel free to, to bounce them off me, but, but don't expect that I'm going to give you, you know, specific direction on what you should be doing. Just to maybe uh, help you soften up with your practice of mindfulness and really enjoy it. And feel free to range through all of these practices that are being laid out here. Because by the time we get to the fourth foundation, you know, we'll probably come close this morning to finishing mindfulness of the body. Uh, I don't think we'll completely get through it, but we will next time. And mindfulness of the feelings will not take very long. Mindfulness of the mental, the mind, the mental processes might take a session or two, and then we get into the final one, which is really the Dharma. We'll be looking at things like hindrances and the aggregates and the sense spheres, the seven factors of, of awakening, and then the four noble truths. So we kind of run the whole gamut here from, from mindfulness of the breath to the four noble truths. So in this text, which isn't all that long, I mean, the commentary stretches it out, obviously, but if you just looked at the sutra itself, yeah, not that many pages. But the alpha and omega of this whole practice, the whole thing. So that's the power of it. And this importance of calming before we move on from, from these third and fourth exercises. Calming really sets the stage for everything else that follows. The sense of serenity. It's, it's, the, it's also referred to as samadhi. It's our ability to concentrate, to focus. We can only do that when we're in a calm state of mind. And I uh, was in a conversation yesterday with somebody who uh, was definitely not in a, he was in a very agitated state of mind. And I had, uh, become aware of this and, and I initiated the contact uh, and to further exacerbate matters uh, right just before I called he had gone outside to sit figure well being outside will help calm him down and and this good-sized raccoon decides to latch on to his became kind of aggressive and grabbed onto his uh, pant leg pretty alarming. So when he, when he answered the phone, he saw it was me and he, 
answered it, but if there's a high state of distress, and he had already been distressed beforehand because he just moved there a couple of months ago, and he hates it. <laughs> he's ready to move again. So he's just really distressed. So obviously, and we've we've gotten ourselves into those states, I suspect all of us. And to be able, before you can do anything, we have to kind of uh, let that start to settle out and become, and begin to establish some calmness again. It might take a while. By the time we hung up, he was in a much better state. Because talking through it with somebody can be helpful. But uh, when we come to sit, we're generally bringing with us some forms of, of restlessness, anxiety, so on and so forth. So these initial practices of working with the breath, are very, very helpful in terms of being able to calm ourselves so that we can begin to have some deeper insights. Without calmness, you're not gonna have any insight because your mind's just bouncing around. So it's hugely important, which makes these very uh, vital practices to become familiar with and to uh, to continue to come back to. You know, it's not like you ever graduate from these. These are very uh, solid practices for uh, everybody from, from raw beginners to people that have been meditating for many, many, many years. Very important practices. So this uh, practice of being with the breath in the whole body and and then just simply turning your mindfulness awareness, your mindful awareness to the calming that that automatically takes place. It's happening as soon as you direct your mindfulness to, to whole body breathing. So it's just that slight shift to, to uh, place in your mindfulness on that calmness. Be aware of it and that that's always there for you. You can always tap into that. Because we're always breathing. So if we can just stop, even in the middle of high intensity, just stop for a moment or two and achieve that calmness. And then you're ready to, to move on to whatever uh, needs to be uh, cared for at that point. And this experience of broadening the awareness initially from like the tip of the nostril to the whole body. Well, of course, it doesn't end with the whole body. And that's just our skin bag, as we call it. Uh, we take that beyond there. 
We'll uh, be looking at other practices having to do with the bodily elements and, pro and processes, uh, which entail looking at our entire surroundings. Rather than just focusing on the experience of the breath, having an awareness of, of breathing in and breathing out is our interaction with the environment outside of the skin bag. And while there's a conceptual element that can enter into this too, but it can lead to a deeper realization in terms of just, you know, the, the molecules and atoms that we are breathing in, how they've been recycled through countless myriad times, through how many other living beings, until through the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we ingest, they enter our bodies and, and flow on. So we really are this entirety. That's just a process to become mindfully aware of that and to have that deeper understanding can relieve an awful lot of anxiety as compared to having this separate sense of self that we're constantly defending. Rather, it's this self with a very small s that's, that's just part of this complete recycling uh, apparatus. Kind of like a cell in a body. We're just cells in this great body that we inhabit. The body of the cosmos, not our skin bag body. So this expansion of our awareness through these third and fourth exercises, we've taken it to our body. But the same direction of expanded awareness will ultimately take us well beyond that. Just wanna plant that awareness at this stage. And the importance, as I, as I was indicating, of calmness, of serenity to everything else that follows. We can't, you know, the next foundation on the feelings or on moving ahead to the third foundation on the mind. We can't really come to understand those if we don't have this calmness. To be able to just have bare awareness rather than the reactivity too, which is the way with feelings and mental states. We're generally highly reactive. It's not about awareness, it's about reactivity. It's like bringing, speaking of, of chemistry, the chemistry of life, it's like bringing 
chemicals together that are highly reactive. Our, our way of reacting typically to feelings and mental states. It's not about the ability to be aware. Yeah. Smoke starts coming up. <laughs> Things start happening. And then it just kind of creates that cycle, whereas the calmness creates its own cycle. There's this positive feedback that gets created rather than a potentially very dis destructive feedback. Or in the teachings of one of our uh, very important ancestors, Hong Ji, from 12th century China, uh, someone who was highly admired by Dogen. Uh, you know, he taught silent illumination, illumination being the insight, the realization, and the silence being this calmness, the serenity, serene illumination. Sometimes it's also referred to as. The two come together. They're actually one, but they can be seen from those two sides, those two aspects. So we're entering into a practice here that can really develop the, uh, the calmness, the serenity, the stillness. And from there, be able to, to go more deeply into states of deeper understanding. So, And another example of, uh, of insight arising out of these practices, as Analayo points out, he says, the, uh, just the ever-changing rhythm of in and out breaths provides a constant reminder of impermanence, of the process nature, the active nature of our very existence which is based on impermanence. It's always there. Not just having the idea of it, but seeing how it weaves through everything in our life, right down to uh, these elemental bodily processes that keep us alive, that make the practice possible in the most fundamental way. Without impermanence, there'd be no practice. So.
So I think that prepares us then to move into the next section, which is uh, the uh, mindfulness of postures and activities. So we're moving from the breath now to these other two aspects of mindfulness of the body. In, uh, in Buddhist teachings, the postures are four in number. Uh, they're the one we're very familiar with in our practice sitting. And there's standing, there's walking, there's lying down. These are the, what are being uh, uh, referred to when we talk about postures. So simply to, to be aware, we become one with our body. It's a natural extension of mindfulness of the breathing, mindfulness of the posture. It's important to, to seated meditation. That's why so much emphasis is placed on sitting upright. Be aware of one's posture at all times. And that's a way of becoming one with your body. Of course, in the Western world, especially, we're used to mind-body dualism. So this sense of, of bring, bringing the two together, they're always together. We have a better appreciation of that, I think, in our time. Things like holistic medicine, the impact of mind on body and vice versa. That it's really one phenomenon. And we can't treat them as separately, not effectively. And this is the great helpfulness of establishing a practice where we can direct our mindfulness to posture. Whatever that posture is. So even in walking, whether it's kin in here or just uh, walking down the aisle of a store, be able to do that. Be aware of what, you're, what you are doing. That's a basic directive that Thich Nhat Hanh is constantly using one of our great contemporary teachers of mindfulness practices. Just be able to stop from time to time and bring your mindfulness to what's actually going on right now. What is my posture? What's my activity? What thoughts are going on? One of the reasons for his mindfulness bell that, uh, Plum Village, <clears throat> even in the middle of a Dharma talk, you know, bell gets hit at certain intervals. And it's just a call to the, the teacher 
whether it's Thich Nhat Hanh or someone else would stop and everybody, including the teacher would just take, take a moment or two to do that mindfulness practice. So these exercises would constitute part of that posture, activity. How's my attention right now? Have I been paying attention to, to the talk that's being given? All these things. Mindfulness, of course, is a practice, so it's something we constantly engage in. Obviously, not limited to formal meditation practice. It's something that we take with us always. The ability to, it's always there to be practiced. And it's one of those things that the more we do practice it, it kind of... uh, use the language of Thursday night, it kind of hooks us. (laughs) We fall into that pattern of continuing to uh, practice mindfulness because it enriches our life. To have that awareness of what's going on rather than just going on. Mindlessly. I think it's safe to say that mindful is always better than mindless. And a point that uh, Anlayo makes, it's important. Because it also directly ties into Dogen's teachings, no surprise. Uh, that knowing things like posture and activity, it's not a conceptual type of knowing, of course. This is taking us into the realm of knowing that can be described as a deep, intimate awareness of our activities. Kind of this, this sense of, of being the activity, of being the posture, of being the breath. What sometimes in the context of formal meditation and Zen can be described as Zazen is doing Zazen. That's become, that's where mindfulness allows us to become one with the practice. There's just the practice because we become so intimate with that practice through this kind of deep mindfulness that there is just the practice. Self drops off. Because self has merged with the practice. We're the ones abstracting out from it. And we can stop that process of abstraction through mindfulness and just become the activity. And I think we all experience that. 
at times, uh, sometimes when we're not even intending to practice mindfulness. We just kind of slip into it from time to time. So it's definitely part of who we are, that, that capability. And this mental anchoring in the body. It's a good anchoring to establish. And the only way we can do that is through consistent practice with these types of exercises. So in in the realm of our activities, there's really no special list of activities to to base this on. It can be anything. And again, to to bring Thich Nhat Hanh into this, he uh, was wonderful at uh, designing mindfulness practices around our most mundane day-to-day activities, things like brushing the teeth. And there are people that have his gathas that were designed to be uh, practiced in conjunction with certain activities. People have these, you know, you can go into their bathrooms and they'll have gathas for combing one's hair, for brushing the teeth, so on and so forth all the aspects of personal care. Every single activity we engage in lends itself to mindfulness. There's nothing that falls outside of the scope of mindfulness. Our entire life is literally an open field that can be cultivated through this practice of mindfulness. And in so doing, it allows us to become very intimate with our life, to be able to really care for it. And because of interdependence, if we're caring for our life, we're caring caring for the lives of others at the very same time. There's no distinction between those two. And the more we do this, the less likely we are to become subject to the constant distraction that we're exposed to and fall victim to. And there's so many means by which Organizations, individuals are striving to distract us. They want our attention for their own purposes. 
And it's good to have that awareness. So that you can actually make a choice about whether you want to be distracted in that way or not. Rather than just automatically going there. Of course, our electronic devices make that so easy now. We can fall right into that routine. So mindfulness can be a great benefit in terms of allowing us to more skillfully work with that aspect of our lives, which has a a very big impact on all of us. That can become almost all consuming. Is that what we want? We'll pull back and and look into that and be able to actually make adjustments rather than feel like because of the conditioning that's been set, that's set, set in, that's already taken place just to become reactive rather than practice mindfully. So this ability to work with potential distractions is a very big deal. It'd be uh, pretty difficult to really practice if we're constantly in a state of distraction being pulled this way and that way. So the next topic that uh, Adelayo brings up that I wanted to spend a bit of time with is the connection between mindfulness and what he calls clear knowledge. And, And to kind of set the stage for this, uh, uh, Anlayo uh, writes that mindfulness and clear knowledge com- complete these preliminary stages that are concerned ultimately with ethical conduct, with restraint, and contentment, and really thereby form the starting point for the formal practice of meditation. When one uh, goes to a secluded place, like 1813 Wilton Road, pretty secluded, 
in order to overcome the hindrances, to pro progress through the levels of absorption and to gain realization. So these preliminary stages concerned with ethical conduct, restraint and contentment. Wanted to take a little bit of time there and how that relates to this clear knowledge. Clear knowledge is the, the insight that comes forth. You know, we were taught this past Thursday, uh, we were looking at the section of uh, Mountains and Water Sutra dealing with uh, Boatman De Chen and the practice of clear knowing between De Chen and uh, the student who arrived at literally at his boat, Jia uh, Shan, and their ex verbal exchanges to open up this realm of clear knowing of insight. That weren't that transcended our normal way of evaluating things. So the clear knowing, this is why terms like insight are used to, to try to designate that. It's not discursive. It's not through argument. It's to actually see uh, what we were referring to as the Dharma eye on Thursday. It's the Dharma eye that engages in clear knowing. So mindfulness is kind of exercising our Dharma eye to give it some practice to see things clearly. Be outside of the discursive realm. And this is why knowing for out of the Satipatthana Sutra and from Dogen, knowing slash slash studying is to become very intimate with, to become one with. And in that way, there's clear knowing that takes place because it's direct. There's no mediation involved. There's no separation involved. And it's from this that things like ethical conduct receive their foundation. There's a clear knowing. Or restraint versus impulsive, reactive, which we've been talking about. If we're practicing mindfully, which opens up this realm of clearly knowing, we're not going to be so subject to impulsive, reactive behavior. 
we'll be able to exercise restraint as we navigate our way through electronic media and other uh, things that are constantly laid in our path to try and divert us, distract us <coughs> for somebody else's purposes. And lastly, uh, but very importantly, contentment. This is the foundation we're building here. Ethical conduct, restraint, and contentment. And there's the line from the Metta Sutta that I've always found very powerful for, for me in my practice is uh, the line about being easily contented and joyous. And the Metta Sutta is the discourse on loving kindness. So to be easily contented kind of leads naturally to, to a joyous state. And that leads to the practice of loving kindness. So contentment means we're not chasing after something. If we're fully present mindfully from moment to moment to moment, this contentment is a natural partner with us throughout our life. If we come to have gratitude for the most basic things, like each in-breath and each out-breath, or each activity, because mindfulness kind of instills gratitude. We can't appreciate things if we're not even aware of them. Once we are aware of them, we can, we can respond with, with appreciation, gratitude, contentment, and we can go through life from that place. So is Analayo's drawing this picture out here? You know, this is the starting point now for our formal practice of meditation. What a starting point. To have ethical conduct, restraint, and contentment. Really establish some pretty rich groundwork from which to, uh, to build a practice. will allow some wonderful uh, vegetation and fruit to unfold. So again, just kind of hearkening back to the essential aspect of mindfulness, part of the Eightfold Path. I mentioned earlier the seven factors of awakening. Mindfulness is factor number one. It's where we enter into the path. 
And joy is another one of the factors. So we'll be looking at, uh, at the other six factors in addition to mindfulness a little later on in our study of Satipatthana. But the importance of the presence of clear knowledge, this direct seeing. Or as Analayo expresses it, he says, one should develop non-delusion by clearly understanding the true nature of reality. So non-delusion is essentially prajna. And of course, prajna or wisdom includes wisdom about delusion. <laughs> so delusion gets wrapped up in it. It's not, it's part of reality too, but we're, we're mindfully aware we have wisdom of it because we've, we rather than uh, trying to push it away, we become very intimate. We practice our mindfulness with it too. When are we in delusion? When we're uh, treating ourselves as these separate skin bags and taking our usual defensive posture or our acquisitive posture, wanting more and more and more of whatever it is. Maybe more enlightenment. <laughs> well, we always want more. <laughs> and we always highly value whatever it is we, we want. So if we become these spiritual practitioners, that's okay. <laughs> we'll just shift over. I'm not so driven by material goods anymore. I want the spiritual goods now. <laughs> I've elevated my game. <laughs> so we need to really develop this, this non-delusion by clearly understanding, clearly knowing the true nature of reality. True nature and mindfulness. Hopefully, it's becoming uh, uh, very, very obvious the vital role that that plays in this. It's always being in direct contact with the true nature of reality, including delusion, or as Dogen expressed it, being uh, enlightened about our delusion. It's the state of Buddhas. Sentient beings are greatly deluded about enlightenment. <laughs> Enlightened beings are, are enlightened about delusion. And then another important point made by Analayo here in this context about, uh, and this, this is also something very much part of Dogen's teaching, uh, 
And here he references, of course, the Satipatthana's uh, uh, an early Indian uh, uh, work on mindfulness. There was a later Chinese text that's structured somewhat differently uh, that occasionally Analaya will reference. Uh, and actually there was a point in, uh, in Mountains and Waters Sutra where uh, Shahaku references it as well. And it's the Chinese Madhyama Agama but it's, it's about mindfulness practice. And uh, Analayo talks here about how uh, this text speaks of a monk's dignified and quiet behavior when practicing clear knowledge in regard to bodily activities. So the way we conduct ourselves. When it's, when it's informed by mindfulness by clearly knowing it manifests itself that's how our practice uh, impacts others without our intending it to necessarily probably better that we don't also harkens back to uh, from mountains and waters you know the teachings of Dogen on no traces it's our intentions that leave the traces that create the karma. So just to practice. And it will, it will through this dignified and quiet behavior, which are just terms to try to signify that it can become clear to others. that that there is wisdom here. One of the hallmarks of wisdom is to not be reactive, acting out of impulse, to act out of clear clear knowledge, to clearly be aware. So this dignified and quiet behavior, Dogen terms that the awesome presence of active Buddhas. There's a fascicle in his Shobogenzo that carries that title. The awesome presence, dignified and quiet behavior of active Buddhas, just their normal activity. Nothing special, doesn't have to be some sanctified Buddhist activity, whatever it is. Awesome presence, dignified and quiet behavior, whatever terms we want to throw out there. Again, it's having that insight, don't get caught up by the terminology. Maybe instead of quiet, there's a time for for there to be not so quiet. But maybe the quiet is always kind of running through it. So to be able to open ourselves to, to even these statements, these attempts to, to describe it. Dignified, 
might make it sound like, well, we've got our, our robes, we're fully suited up. <laughs> we're really dignified folks. But there's a dignity in, uh, in the appearance, potentially. I mean, there's no reason why uh, someone completely lacking in what we would normally term dignified appearance. Having been in the business world, you know, I have a sense of well, dignified. That's a Brooks Brothers suit, you know, crisp starch shirt. <laughs> A stylish tie, it's dignified. Shoes, shoes, got a nice shun. Yeah, this is this is a different type of dignified. Just in the demeanor, could be in the attire of uh, a warehouse worker, a farmer, short order cook. could manifest this. So this is part of this mindful awareness and co constantly opening ourselves up is to take descriptions like this and to play with them, open them up to see how they can apply much, a much more broader sense than what we might ordinarily take them to be uh, signify. But this enters in here simply because uh, as Analayo goes on to say, uh, yeah, this is like uh, mindfulness imagery, which depicts Satipatthana as the proper pasture of a monk. Pasture. While, of course, improper pasture, he says, uh, represented sensual distraction, where we are being our reactive selves. So this is the sense in which mindfulness kind of leaves its mark on the practitioner. And the impact of mindfulness on our clear understanding of the true nature of reality in this fashion of a clear knowing, this direct insight. Something which is being developed along with all these mindfulness contemplations that we're working with here. It's kind of, it's a constant thread running through all this. We become intimately aware with reality. Because we're paying attention.
and this overlapping he also then talks about in terms of proper conduct and sense restraint. It's not sense denial. That's ridiculous. Obviously, we, uh, that's how we experience things is through our senses. So the restraint naturally happens. We don't have to you know, rein it in if we're just mindful. That's it. Just be aware. And then your inner wisdom will take care of it. Trust it. It's when we're not paying attention. And it just makes us reactive. And as we go through the other sections of the Satipatthana, it will kind of spell that out for us. Mindfulness of feelings. You know, obviously, the feeling gets triggered by uh, some sense data that we receive through our senses. Initiates a feeling, either positive, negative, or, or neutral. No, no reaction. And then the mental processes that result from that. To become mindfully aware of all that is to practice sense restraint. We're aware. So it doesn't mean we, we don't thoroughly enjoy things. Hopefully not. But the more you practice, I think the more the sense, the sense of sense restraint will uh, kind of take on some clarity that it can sound like a real stilted way of being. And that's not it at all. That's certainly not uh, the overall Zen picture of you know, being spontaneous in the moment not trying to rein things in. Rather, the proper conduct and sense restraint are just natural to the practice. But they're not the object we're trying to attain either. So sometimes, maybe conduct might be undertaken that would seem improper. That's part of the practice too. We're not setting up these rigid boxes. That is definitely not mindfulness practice. Being able to live our lives without those boxes, just through bare awareness. We don't need the boxes. Continued practice in this way 
helps to reinforce that. We become intimately aware of that fact that we can actually live our lives very well without those rigid boxes. So that brings us to the uh, final step in this process, which I, I'm not going to spend too much time with because I think, uh, for one thing, I, I just want to point out where I deviate from from Adelaide, although I think at heart we're we're pretty like-minded here, but uh, but this is the this part on. Uh, the part on anatomical parts and elements, you know, the actual parts of our body and the elemental uh, makeup of our body to get into the actual uh, nature. You know, heart, I mean, the organs like heart, lungs, digestive tract in terms of anatomical parts and the elements meant something different at the time of the Satipatthana Sutra. You know, there were the four basic elements of fire and air and earth and water. Of course, now, you know, we, we go to the periodic table to, to point to the elements and there are a lot more than four. And we have a far more uh, complex view of what that is. And I think we're far better served to use that you know, we're practicing in the 21st century. So it's nice from a historical standpoint to, to see where they were coming from, but you know, we can take our current understanding of, of what elements are and, and it works just as well. And the issues here with, with some of the Theravadan approaches, uh, to like the parts and the, and the elements of the body, especially the parts, is they use this as a, as a tool for achieving sense restraint in ways that, that can kind of lead to almost a repugnance of the body. You know, they want to address, uh, focus on, it seems, some of the very, most unappealing aspects of the body so that, uh, to, to accomplish two things. We don't get too conceited with our own bodies because we realize in a very literal fashion all the shit that's in there. <laughs> and also to from the standpoint of sensory strength that we don't get too wildly excited by other bodies either because we understand all the shit that's in those. <laughs> So there's that underlying context here that can become a problem. And, and in fairness to Anilayo, he addresses that. He, he says, you know, that's really to mistake it. But at the same time, he wants to push that envelope. And I think it can, it can be pushed to a certain point, you know, I think. But it naturally happens just to take... Uh, in our time, 
uh, we could describe it as taking a more scientific view of the body. It's like putting it under the microscope. So, and to see how we fabricate everything, what we find attractive, or our inflated sense of ourselves and our own body. You know, it's from one frame of reference, but we can change that frame of reference, you know, with a with an outside tool like a microscope and look at it from a whole different angle a different level of magnification and see the same thing, but in a very different level of detail. And in doing so, we kind of deconstruct our fabrication of it. And that can be a helpful practice just in terms of tempering ourselves so that we don't become reactive this highly reactive, impulsive response to our fabrications of what's there, which is built up from all kinds of conditions. And it's a powerful form of conditioning because it does get response from us. So that means it gets tossed out there. So not to become repulsed, but just to to have that deeper, clear knowing. But obviously, there's uh, also, well, this is conceptual, but I think it's helpful to have the understanding that there there's a pretty deep purpose served by, you know, being having sense desire. It's kind of at the heart of our, uh, our propagation as existing beings. So without a certain level of that, you know, there'd be no practice either. Wouldn't be possible. And sense desire also in a different vein promotes loving kindness. Again, if it's, if it's tempered, it really can connect up rather than some uh, crazy notion of overblown love. It can become, while it could be committed to, to a, an individual, but in such a way that it also can flow out uh, to all beings is what we've termed agape love, that we can see a linkage between that and just a more uh, maybe primal sense desire that sense desire has positive, good, good, good side, constructive side and can be destructive side. It's not all, you know, something that we're trying to push away. I think some Theravadan teachings can can kind of lead us to that uh, more negative view. It's to, whereas I think the more accurate way, the more balanced, the more open way of seeing it is that they're both in there, the positive and the negative, and we need to see both. 
So to, to see our, our sensual desires as being something potentially very positive, that kind of are a gateway to joy in that positive vein, but they can also be a gateway to great dukkha in a negative vein. They have both potentials. And I don't, I wouldn't be drawn to a path that just says, well, because of the, the dukkha involved, let's just cut the whole thing. <laughs> Eliminate it. That's not the solution because that's an important aspect of what we are. And as I was trying to, to point out, you know, it's kind of core to our very existence. We can't continue. Well, I guess we could in a techno technological age. We could, we're pro probably uh, approaching the point where we could continue to propagate without the need for sense desire anymore. <laughs> we can do that. It's just, just a chemical process. We can put the biochemists to work and they'll take care of that. But that's not the path I'm interested in pursuing, frankly. So the but you know these these practices, just to wrap this up, working with the, the parts of our body and the elements are ultimately they're they're powerful ways of working with our fabricated sense of self to see, to keep in mind what we are at the end of the day. And also when we do this, like looking at the elements to see how the, speaking of the true nature of reality, and that's our nature, and it's the nature of all things. Well, when we break it down to these basic processes, you know, what what are we made up of? You know, these elements and molecules, and what we share with other beings, you know, other living beings. What what's uh, the point of uh, of differentiation these days? Is DNA? You know, that's how we measure. Our, uh, our uh, biological lineages, who and what are we descended from? And by estimates of, of uh, the number of years from that common ancestor and where the family trees branch off. This is our family of living beings going all the way back to when it was all uh, single celled. to us, the dominant species of our time. But we, when we look at what we have in common, all of a sudden, you know, we get down off of our pedestal somewhat, which is definitely a good thing in terms of clear understanding of the nature of reality. And our role in it is this part of it. It's every, every being's role in it. We're no different. We're no different. 
And that at its heart is what these, these practices are about. Mindfulness of anatomical parts. And otherwise, you know, I, I mean, I have found this to be helpful in my mindful, mindfulness practice, no question. And it has really kind of deepened my interest in things that maybe I wouldn't have been so interested in. You know, uh, did, did an online course on, uh, on biology that was pretty detailed. That was like a Dharma teacher right out of this mindfulness practice, really was. To be able to understand the processes of all living beings that I share with all other beings. So this sense of, of harmony really gets hammered home from a conceptual standpoint, granted. But, uh, but the conceptual, it's good if the conceptual is, is interwoven uh, with the, the clear knowing, the direct insight, and then to have that reinforced by the state of our un conceptual understanding these days. There seems to be something there. that we can hit in many different ways, from poetically to scientifically, to religiously, spiritually. So I think I'm going to stop here, which brings me, I got about, I thought ideally I'd get us right up to, uh, to the final section on uh, on corpses in decay and meditation on death. And save that juicy material for next month. So you have something to look forward to. <laughs> and then we'll jump from that into feelings. So that's what we have to look forward to for, uh, for August. So I'll stop at this stage, plug in the uh, microphone. So what are your thoughts about all this, Ryan? Thanks, Dean. Um, great talk or great uh, analysis. <laughs> um, I, okay. I, first, first of all, I really appreciate your ability to kind of qualify language. I have a habit of kind of getting caught up in language and so therefore I, I had a really strong reaction to the term dignified and quiet behavior kind of conjured up images of like a finishing school or something yeah. Um, yeah. and but I but I, I I don't remember exactly what it was but I, I appreciated Dogen's um, language uh, <laughs> um, I don't remember what it was exactly, but 
awesome presence of active Buddhas. That's how he described it. Yes, yes, that that, uh, that resonates with me a lot more. So um, yeah. wanted to mention that real quick. Uh, secondly, I, I'm I'm taking a class, a trauma class right now, in uh, in grad school, and we're learning about polyvagal theory. I don't know if you've mm -hmm. heard of it or not, but I have. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Um, you know, just a primer. It's essentially like an evolutionary theory where we have three nerves um, or three different systems that are autonomically controlling our, our behavior without our knowing. And this newer ventral vagal uh, nerve is what it connects our, our, our visceral organs or our gut with our yeah. facial expression. And, and it's, it's kind of the, the social uh, engagement system that, that keeps us safe and connected um and i tell you what it's it's teaching me a lot um you know on the on the biological side a lot about um the mindfulness mindfulness of the body i mean talk about uh you know trying to be aware of what's going on in your gut in your, in your throat um in the tension of your face all that stuff i'm, I'm learning i'm learning a lot uh you know, and we do talk about mindfulness quite a bit um, in in the class. So it's it's really it's a really cool connection that I'm that I'm getting there. Um, and I would definitely uh, recommend to anyone who's interested to uh, to kind of research the idea of polyvagal theory. Um, and it's uh, it's it's was brought about by a man named Stephen Porges. So. Um, just wanted to kind of bring that out there. I'm glad you did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have some just bare bones awareness of, of that. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the really pejorative one, I mean, and this is, this is my take on it, my practice. It's like, it's, it's almost like uh, just a, uh, an antidote if it's really reaching poisonous levels <laughs> and I need something fast acting to, to, to deal with it. But I wouldn't uh, recommend it as, as just kind of like an ongoing regular mindfulness practice because used consistently over time, it can you know, lead to you know, aversion, which is a problem. I mean, that's one of the, the hindrances. So, so I think you're kind of, to, to, to deal with one issue, you're creating another one. 
So the ultimate place is to have that balanced view that it can be a, become a negative thing, but it also has the potential to, to really uh, uh, take us down a very beautiful path too, and to hold both of those and to practice mindfully with it uh, doesn't mean that there's not going to be dukkha. I mean, that's part of our existence. But at least it means, hopefully, that we can have this awesome presence with it. Even in the heart of the dukkha that will arise, we can practice with that too. But if we really get uh, overboard with our sense of, of our own physical nature, and it, this isn't limited just to... Uh, to to the sexual realm. I mean, they're just this whole sense of, uh, there's almost like this, to, to look at it in terms of health. You know, there's, there's a way in which uh, taking care of ourselves is a, obviously a positive thing, but you can go overboard with that and people do. And it becomes then a, a very negative thing. They go kind of bonkers. <laughs> And and I think the same sort of thing with uh, if, if we enter into uh, more sensual realms or fitness, you know, people want to be fit. And I think that's a healthy thing. That's good. But you can also then go. There's always that tendency to go to an extreme, to blow it up into something way more, to keep coming back to this middle way path, that these are all good things. But, but don't uh, you know, turn on the, uh, uh, the turbocharging, uh, hit that switch, and all of a sudden, it becomes not such a good thing. So that would be my description of like sense restraint, mm -hmm. not cutting it off. I think you know, we need our senses to, to be... A, be aware of what the hell is <laughs> coming up right now. <laughs> Otherwise, we're just kind of uh, deaf, dumb, and blind. We're we're all Tommy. But uh, to actually be able to respond appropriately depends on our senses, and to be able to continue to nurture them in that way and and mindful, mindfully working with them is to nurture them. And mindfully working with them is not to try and cut them off, say that sense is bad. That's an important recurring theme in Zen is, is it's uh, to, to get beyond this good and bad, to just be able to openly be present with what's coming up and not prejudging it. And to through openly being with it, seeing it as it is, then to, to be able to, to navigate your way through it, which everybody needs to be able to do for themselves. Because you know, we all have that capability.
So yeah, I'm glad these things are coming up because <laughs> because they're they're important and they are uh, places where uh, Buddhist teachings can be misconstrued and have been misconstrued. Oh, Steve. Um, um, I forgot the posture with this. That Then if you're not aware of the self, then, you know, you've had the dropping <laughs> off of self. And I, I, I think what can, what can also become uh, uh, a, a bit of a hindrance here is the slicing and dicing of the practice. So to take mindfulness as a separate thing, and at the very beginning, you know, we made that point that uh, looking at the Eightfold Path, that mindfulness is part of that. And what makes it right mindfulness is its linkage with the other seven parts of that path. Otherwise, you know, mindfulness, uh, you could be mindful of, of a lot of things that are, are not part of the, the path. So that's really not right mindfulness. You could be mindfully aware of committing great crimes and be able to do them very much more effectively because of your mindful approach to them. Uh, so to be able to look at the practice 
in a, in a holistic way and see how mindfulness is part of that. But it, it doesn't mean that it needs to apply in a separate way because it can't. Mindfulness is empty. You know, the Eightfold Path is empty. It's all empty, but that doesn't mean they're not rich and vital teachings. So in your uh, thinking uh, for, for a living and for, for enjoyment, yeah, exactly. I, I'm on board with that. <laughs> to be able to see how, hopefully, mindfulness practice helps to enrich that for you. And it can do that without necessarily having to always be there. But what happens, hopefully, is that through regular, consistent mindfulness practice, because it's not in some separate box, it's impacting all these other parts of your life where you, you can have a sense of that. But it's not like you can say, oh, yeah, now I'm, I'm doing this mindfully. It's more that you have the awareness that because of your uh, more expanded mindful take on things, like to, to hear about this new approach uh, of, the, of the vagal uh, system, uh, that you know that that all of a sudden, because of our practice, that's kind of a natural response. It's comparable to the one when I first heard about it. I was deeply interested because of my mindfulness practice. Uh, but it didn't mean that when I'd study it, I'm, I'm concerned about doing it mindfully. That's that was mindfulness was going to you know, run through the whole thing. That's become part of my my being. And so initially, you know, we do these exercises to, to kind of reach that point. But in terms of being able to have it more consistently applied through your life, that will happen. That happens on its own. The, the exercises are just to, to allow that to, to enter into your life more and more broadly. And then you, you'll recognize, you'll kind of see with that Dharma eye, the impact that mindfulness and all the other uh, aspects of the path are, are having on that without even seeing a need to try and, you know, draw these clear uh, uh, connections. Because also with the Dharma eye, we see that that the, the wiring here is so so involved that it it doesn't lend itself. That's a fabrication to see that kind of wiring. That it's it's so it, because of interdependence, the wires are just cro crossing over, and and it's way beyond our ability to get a handle on. So there's just this insight of what we can see in a direct way, but we can't. And this is where it breaks down if we try to, to do the schematic, because we can't do it.
It's it's literally uh, infinite in terms of of what accounts for how we approach any little thing. It literally is with emptiness being boundlessness. Everything is boundless. And we have to, that's part of the, the clear knowing and the insight, which mindfulness is helping to, to uh, bring forth for us. But, but part of the bringing forth is to see the emptiness of mindfulness, that mindfulness itself. It, because of its boundless nature, it doesn't lend itself to saying, oh, that's how mindfulness is impacting this. Uh, but, you know, I, I can't even, uh, though I'm not directly involved relating to my own experience, you know, I have the sense that mindfulness is, is uh, likely impacting your work into your study of things, uh, but in ways that I wouldn't even attempt to, to try and, and map out, make those kinds of direct connections. I think it just kind of runs through, uh, whoever practices mindfulness, it kind of runs through their whole being and it can only impact and influence, kind of like, uh, maybe a, 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 a clearer way of, of, of seeing this would be something like our moods, how they can influence things more broadly without even trying to connect directly. But you know, you're in a really wonderful mood. It's like everything's enhanced. And in that way, you know, mindfulness can have a, a similar impact to our to what our moods do. And, well, no, I, I mean, in terms of, I, I just brought mood into it because of the way it has this overarching impact on everything you do. Except the mood, you know, is is more subject to impermanence than, than our practice, hopefully. <laughs> but, but the impact, I think, because it reaches everywhere in a way that we, we can more clearly see. That's why I used mood, because it reaches everywhere, but we, we can kind of see how it is, whether it's a sour mood or a good mood. In a similar fashion, mindfulness is at work. But it's it's not as apparent as like our mood is, but it's it's having an impact. That's why I brought mood in. But I just always think that that thinking with activities that put a boundary around mindfulness penetrates. I mean, so if you were you know shoveling tables, you know, providing. It's very easy, I would think, to be mindful while you're doing that. <coughs> so, so certain certain types of activity and certain certain jobs mm -hmm. lend themselves more to, to awareness mm -hmm. um, than others. And it, thinking was always just like this opaque activity that I couldn't be mindfully aware of thinking without ceasing to think. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly, but but to bring to bring it to bear in a major way, like and this is true for a lot of functions. I mean, a musician uh, in a performance, there's there's this sense of just um, when we become lost in the activity. Uh, if a musician's mindfully aware of of uh, of what he or she is doing, uh, the performance is going to completely shift in, in uh, probably not such a very good way, as opposed to just immersing themselves like you would in your thought, in your work. You you sit down and you fully engage in it. And you're not trying to bring an outside practice to bear on it. You're engaging in your thought. And that's, so now you're using concentration, right concentration, part of the Eightfold Path. And it's distinct from right mindfulness. You're immersed in it. And that's the way uh, a musician can, can uh, optimize their performance is they've done the mindfulness practices, learning how to do things, and then they just bring themselves to it and become immersed in that activity, right? Concentration, they're completely in it, samadhi-like. And that's an important practice too. I don't know if that helps. Right. You're exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Minutes, but then right. 
<laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if it's helpful, then yeah, I mean they're they they were created for for a reason, even before there was a market for them. <laughs> so they they can be helpful, sure. I, I think the only uh, concern is that the practice become overly dependent upon them. But as a skillful means that can be helpful, yeah, there, any, any such thing can, can be a, a good adjunct to one's practice. We're good. Anybody wants to go off and start practicing the uh, the next exercise or not? I'm ready to practice some mindfulness with that. May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. 
I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. All right. Well, in terms of rearranging about all we really need to do, uh, I think, yeah, we need to pick up the chant books that Sean's already taken charge on and the cushions on uh, on this side should go back, but all the others can stay out here.